one of, as is always the case, one of the most crucial aspects to understanding the prophetic words of Isaiah here and his people, the words to the people Israel, is again to understand the context. What is going on? What is happening in the middle of this book? Uh, Interestingly enough, somebody said to me this morning, I want to study Isaiah. Do you have a good commentary? And (laughs) I don't know which one to give you, because depending on the commentator, they're going to take different take on different things. And there's a lot going on in Isaiah. Well, one of the pieces that's going on in this book, this prophetic book, is that the first 39 chapters are really grim. They're really bad. Uh, They're really bad news. Uh, Isaiah is essentially saying to the people, you are going into captivity because of your sin. And it's your own fault. And you deserve it. Right? Now, if you think about that, that's not a great message. You know what I mean? Like, I, I would rather not have to deliver that message. But in chapter 40, Isaiah takes such a hard turn that there is literally debate within the world of interpretation that we have a new author. Somebody new steps in and starts writing. Because you know what? Isaiah just can't be this positive. (laughs) Isaiah can't be this nice. You know what I mean? And so from chapter 40 on, we have what has been described as the book of consolation within the prophecy of Isaiah. That is where we begin. And where we begin, I think, is this fascinating prophecy that first of all, and we always have to remember this, Isaiah's prophecy was written to the people of Israel what would it be, 2,700 years ago? Isaiah 40 was not written to you. You say, what? (laughs) You can't say that to us, right? No, I mean, many times we forget that. When we read scripture, we're thinking, this is about me. This is about my life. This is about, how does this impact my life? No, this is a prophecy written to Jews that are about to go into captivity, right? So there is an initial message and application to them. Now, and, and, and in some ways, I think I'm figuring this out more and more. We saw this in Acts. We saw this in Galatians, right? But there's this magnificent part of prophecy where it can be initially fulfilled to the hearers and then be fulfilled in an even greater way in Jesus, Right now, I don't know about you, but that's kind of mind blowing that God has the capacity to fulfill his word with the people it's given to then, but also fulfill his word in such a way with Messiah, with Jesus, that it has implications for us 2,700 years later. Like, think about that. I mean, that is just amazing, right? All right. Hopefully you're as amazed as I am. So. That's part of what we have going on with Isaiah. So Isaiah 39, we finish with Isaiah speaking judgment against Israel 
against their sin because it is against God. And Israel gets really bad news. Isaiah 39, you're going into captivity. You are going to be conquered, Isaiah 39. Now we move to Isaiah 40. (laughs) And the first words in Isaiah 40 are comfort. Comfort. So we get this news, we're going into captivity, and now you want to tell us to be comforted, right? That I don't understand. How, How do these work together? Well, part of it has to do with promises that are coming for God's people. All right? So we'll flesh that out more in a second. But that's that's the context in which Isaiah 40 occurs. Really bad news, really bad broken relationship, Israel and God, and then we come to comfort, comfort my people, right? So Isaiah is dramatically changing his tone here, and and we'll get that before we're done. Isaiah 40 to 55, comfort and consolation, those are key themes throughout those 15 chapters. Now, if you remember, when we studied this a couple years ago, the servant songs happen within Isaiah 40 to 55. Part of the consolation is the salvation the redemption that God is going to accomplish and the restoration. So God is going to save and restore his people. That's why this book of consolation is so good, right? So that's what's going on within the larger scope. Now, What's going to happen in these first 11 verses is we are going to get introduced to many of the themes that will come up for all of those 15 chapters to follow. And I'll I'll say more about that in just a minute. But as we walk through this tonight, here's what I want you to see. Here's what I want you to see coming out of this text is that comfort from our powerful and present God and Savior, that is a reality for you today. So, despite the fact this was written to a different audience, despite the fact it is in some respects fulfilled to them, and then it's fulfilled more completely in Messiah, it still has implications for you. And the implication in some ways is the same. There is comfort for you. There is comfort for me. Through whom? Through God, through our God, through our Savior, that comfort is available to us. Now, one of the elements that's really interesting with these first 11 verses is it's it's very similar. It is Hebrew poetry. Now, remember, with Hebrew poetry, when we're looking at Hebrew poetry, it's not about rhyme and meter. It's about parallels, right? So it's about parallels, comparing and contrasting certain things or giving something that is synonymous to the first thing. That's what's going on with with this text, like the Psalms, right? This text actually happens, I think, in four four stanzas. So verses 1 and 2 is stanza 1. Verses 3 to 5, stanza 2. Verses... um, 6 to 8, stanza 3, and 9 to 11 is stanza 4. So that's our grouping. That's why we're looking at that section tonight. 
all the major themes, as I said a minute ago, they are going to come up in these first 11 verses. Now think about this. Comfort, atonement, the way of the Lord, the glory of the Lord, the power of the word of God, the city of God, the might and tenderness of the Savior, right? All of that is coming up. And what this section does is is it gives us this full expectation that a whole new uh, movement of God's dealing with his people is coming. God is going to interact with his people differently in the future. So think that through. You have 1 through 39, chapters 1 through 39, judgment. You're going into captivity. And then all of a sudden, chapter 40, verses 1 through 11, you have this breath of fresh air. God's going to deal with his people differently in the future. That's encouraging, right? I mean, but it also creates an expectation. It also creates anticipation, right? You remember those words, Advent? Those are Advent words, right? All right. So he begins in stanza one. And if you, if you say, what, what are your four points? They are stanza one, stanza two, stanza three, stanza four. That's the points, right? So if you're looking for a sub, subtitle, that's it, stanza one. All right, verse one and two. He says, he begins with the proclamation of comfort. Right? Comfort, comfort my people. And this comfort is going to come, verse 2, for three specific reasons. Now look at the reasons. And here's again what I'm telling you. You can do this as you walk through the Bible on your own. Right? So look at what he says. He says, comfort, comfort my people again. Says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her three things. Number one. First, that her time of forced labor is over. That's good news, right? That that should bring comfort. Number two, her iniquity, her sin has been pardoned. That's really good news, right? We talked about that good news this morning quite a bit, right? Number three, and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. That phrase, um, literally, there's no definitive way how to, how to interpret that phrase. She's received double from the hand of the Lord. So let me give you a couple interpretations here. This, this just kind of blows my mind. I, I went and looked at it in the Hebrew, and it is, it's just hard. It's hard to know what is the double that they're getting, right? So here, here's the different takes. One says the double is to emphasize how fully Israel has been punished, though not necessarily more than they deserve. So they receive this double punishment, and, and in a way, what, what Isaiah is communicating is that their sentence is fully satisfied before God. That, that's one idea. Second one. Um, some suggest it's kind of hyperbolic. It's used to impress on the people that the chastening, the chastisement of God in exile is actually over. It's done. Now, remember, I think this is prophetic. 
So there, I think the hope is there's coming a day that our punishment, our chastening will be over, right? Okay, the third one. And this one is, is a total opposite, all right? The third one, that God's comfort by announcing that the people will receive a double portion of God's grace, not a double punishment. So it's kind of consistent with what is coming later on in the book, chapter 61, kind of this double portion of a future, or we could say an eschatological, a future blessing, right? They're going to get a double portion in the future. Now, is that interpretation possible? Yes, believe it or not. So the one that I probably would uh, default to is, is that first one that I gave you. I think that, that the punishment that God is going to pour out on them, it's, it's been satisfied, right? I, I think that's the best approach. But what I want you to understand is people that dig at and study this book for, dare we say, a living, they're, they're still up in the air on what this means. So in some ways, as we walk through this, you're not necessarily going to get to the bottom of every one of those <laughs> tidbits like that, right? And, and if you get to one and you can see, man, different people are having different arguments about this, the application probably will be the same, right? So don't, don't get too bogged down in that, okay? That's stanza one, stanza two. Verse three, first time he says, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Now stop. Immediately... What does your mind go to? My mind immediately when I read uh, verse 3, it immediately jumps to the New Testament and who? There you go. Yeah, John the Baptist, right, exactly. So John the Baptist, that's what I start thinking of. Now, stop. When the Jews, who Isaiah's writing to, when they read that, would they have been thinking of John the Baptist? No. Now, that's the beauty of where we are. We, we, hindsight is always twenty twenty, Right? I remember uh, as, as a younger man doing really dumb stuff and talking to my dad and saying, Dad, man, how could this happen? I, I, why, why couldn't I see that? And, and, and my dad would say to me many times, hindsight is always twenty twenty, right? Like you can see more clearly when you're looking back. Folks, in a lot of ways, there's clarity for us getting to look back at all of that. Now, there isn't the same clarity for us looking forward. In some ways, we have to be—we have to have a measure of humility as we look forward, right? Because we don't know, and we really—we—we—we we, we could be really kind of off, skewed a little bit in our understanding of there. But looking back, there's some clarity with that. So yes, it does apply to John the Baptist. Why? How do we know that? Because the Gospels use it and quote this text. Right. So it absolutely applies to him. But as he writes it to them, what's he telling them? Okay, I want to think about them first and then then we'll hit John the Baptist. All right. So look what he says. Verse three, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness, make straight a highway for our God in the desert. Every valley will be lifted up uh, and every mountain and hill will be leveled. So what he's what he's describing there, he's giving you this visual imagery. 
right? You got these rolling hills and you got spots where it goes down and you got hills that go up. He says, literally, that, that, that ground will be leveled. Now think this through for a moment. If you've been carried off into captivity and the place that you've been carried to takes about five to seven to 14 days if the journey doesn't go real well to get back, wouldn't you like a straight path where it's been leveled, right? A little easier trip than up and down and into valleys and who knows what's in that valley, right? You know what I'm saying? You got a level path, straight path. So in part, who we're writing to are people who are going to be in exile. And what he's saying is, God's going to make this path for you to come back. Is he literally going to flatten the ground so that they just, no, that's not the point. The point is that he'll be with them and he'll strengthen them. He'll give them grace on this journey back. That is the very real application for exiles, right? Who are no longer at home. Keep going, verse 5. And the glory of the Lord will appear and all humanity together will see it. Now, don't miss this. For the mouth of the Lord has declared it. So this is the word of God. These are words from God. God said this. This absolutely will happen. So here's this herald. The difficulty of the wilderness. It's not going to be so difficult because God is going to be with you. He's going to prepare the way. This is for his people as they return. However, verse 5, the ultimate fulfillment. Um, when he writes that, are all of the exiles coming back to some extent going to experience this? Well, hopefully they do. Hopefully they understand that God's with them, that God's strengthening them. But what about all humanity? That's where our understanding of this broadens, right? All humanity. How, how and when is all humanity going to see together the glory of God when the Messiah comes? Right? When Jesus comes, that's when this is going to be more completely fulfilled, is in the coming of Jesus, right? And we see that in the New Testament. Malachi talks about that, actually, right? The end of the New Testament. And then Mark, Matthew, Luke, they all talk about John the Baptist and his coming and God's working through him and accomplishing his purpose in him and everything that goes with that. All right, so verse 5, the glory of the Lord, it's returning, in returning describes the fullness, the fullness of God's presence with his people as they return. Um, and this is a typical way that Isaiah describes or affirms, stresses that God has spoken and that he absolutely will do what he said. As he finishes, verse 5, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That, that's kind of an Isaiah way of saying this is absolutely going to happen. You can bank on it, right? Because you can trust the word of God. Now, what Isaiah is going to do now in the prophecy is he's going to continue that line of reasoning. You can trust the word of God. Next stanza, verses 6 through 8. So look what he does now. And I want you to catch this. This is, there's a piece of this that is jarring, but it's good, 
right? We, we need to be jarred a little bit in this area. It's really good, okay? So don't miss this. Stay with me. You with me? You awake? Some of you are yawning. Stop that. All right? Hang on. All right, here we go. Verse 6. Again, a voice, a voice was saying, cry out. And another said, this is another voice, what should we cry out? Verse 7. Sorry, end of verse 6. All humanity is grass, and all its goodness is like the flower of the field. Now, initially when we read that, again, our minds fast forward to where? Remember that? Remember that verse? We talked about it earlier this year when we walked through 1 Peter, right? Peter quotes this verse in the New Testament when he's talking about what? The Word of God and the certainty, the enduring nature of the Word of God, that it absolutely stands. However, in verse 6, as Isaiah gives this message out, who is he talking about? Who does he initially describe? All what? Humanity is like grass. Now, I want you to think about your grass right now. Some of you care more about your grass than others, right? Some of you are, are deeply, deeply entrenched in your grass and its condition, right? You care, you know? Some of us, not, not as much, right? Uh, if we could kill it and it didn't look bad and our spouse wouldn't be upset with us, we would do that, you know? It would save on time mowing. So, he says, all humanity is like grass. So think about your grass three months ago, what it looked like. It always amazes me in the spring, right? We, we get used to all winter long, we get used to brown. You know what I'm saying? And then all of a sudden in the spring, it's just like, boom, it explodes, right? Green. So think about your grass three months ago. Was it green? It's pretty nice, right? Think about it right now. If it's not partially covered with leaves, uh, it it's not as green as it was, right? It's, it's kind of in trouble because of the weather. That's what happens here. So here's, here's what the prophet Isaiah says. You all, you're all, like your, you're all like your grass, right? You're all like your grass. You die quickly. You die quickly. You turn brown quickly. And then he goes on the next phrase and he says, and all... It's goodness. Now, when he says it's, he's describing who? Yeah, he's describing humanity. So all of humanity's goodness is also like the flower of the field. What's happened to your flowers? They doing good? Anybody got good flowers out in their yard? <laughs> no, right? They're all dead, you know? Okay, but what I want you to see is the word goodness. Do you know what that word is? This is going to surprise you. Does anybody have a guess? It's really good. I mean, it's really good. But it's tricky because of the way it's translated. What's one of our favorite words in the Old Testament? Does anybody remember? Anybody? Anybody? I won't wait all night. That's not true. I will. I will wait all night. Does anybody remember? Remember? Yeah. Has said. This is Hesed. Now stop and think about this for a minute. 
The Bible is literally saying about you and about me that your loving loyalty, your faithful love is short-lived. It's temporary. That is God's description of humanity. You and I are transient. You and I are always changing. You and I, <laughs> depends on the day, right? We're, we're, you know, if we're honest, we're a mess depending on the day. That's verse six. That's who we are. Like grass and our loving loyalty, our faithfulness is like the flower of the field. It's dying faster than we'd like to admit. Okay, look at verse seven. Grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on them, indeed the people again are grass. So Yahweh's word matches his glory. It has the same traits. Uh, His word can be trusted. Now, Why is it so important that God's word can be trusted? Stop and think about our context. In chapter 39, what did God tell Israel is coming? You are going into captivity in Babylon. But now he says what? Comfort my people. And in the second verse he says, listen, your time of forced labor is over. Your iniquity has been pardoned. Right? But stop for a second. What if I can't trust that? What if that's just a good sales pitch? That's why chapter, or verse 6, 7, 8, God rehearses. Verse 5, God rehearses what? The certainty of his word. You can trust the word of God, right? You can trust what God says it is true. It will last. So God is in control, though. And and he makes that very clear at the end of verse 7. When the breath of God blows on them, um, what happens? Fades? Flower fades? Well, God's at work. God is in control, right? God is accomplishing his purpose. We, we cannot deny that. And then he goes on to verse 8. And he says, the grass withers again, the flower fades, which repeats exactly what he said in verse 7, right? But then he says, but the word of our God remains forever. The word of our God remains forever. So as he writes this, what he is suggesting to the people is the divine permanence of God. God does not pass away. God does not fail. God does not change. God is not fickle. God doesn't get upset and decide not to talk to you anymore. He doesn't do that. God is the very definition of permanent. Now, just an aside. Some take this verse to mean that the Bible is that way, meaning that once we have a good translation that we decide on, it should never change again. We would never change it. 
Folks, do you, do you see that's not what this is about? In some respects, this is actually about the permanence of God and the fact that you can try and change it all you want. You can't change who God is. You can't change God's message. You can try. You can't. It's not possible. And so what we can do as his people is rest, rest in the reality that he has communicated to us through the word. Now, what I find fascinating in the midst of this, where are the people going to draw comfort from? The word. Where should you draw comfort from? The word, right? That's where our comfort should come from is the word. Okay, so now we go to stanza four. Stanza four, Zion, Herald, Jerusalem, Herald, right? Go up on the highest mountains, declare this. Uh, Raise your voice loudly. Raise it and don't be afraid. Say to the cities, here is your God. So again, we have this heralding, this voice, this speaking that's supposed to go on and it's going on throughout all of these. Every one of these stanzas is about declaring something, truth of God. Here, the instrument of declaring are the people of God. Zion, Jerusalem, go to all these cities is almost the picture and you spread this truth You spread this word about God. And what is the word in part that we're spreading? What is the truth in part that we are declaring? Look what he says in verse 10. See the Lord God, he comes with strength and his power establishes his rule and his arm rules for him and his reward accompanies him. Okay, so several things. A couple things that are really interesting here is the description of God. It has God coming as what? As ruler, as sovereign, as king, right? Now, when Messiah comes, what's Israel's expectation? Ruler, sovereign, king, right? And that is, in part, even why the disciples struggle so badly to understand what Jesus is doing, to understand his ministry. There isn't the anticipation of this spiritual restoration for humanity. There's the anticipation of king, ruler, kingdom. We're getting out from restoration. We're getting out from under the tyranny of... And truly, for, for, for Israel, it was different people groups for 500 years, right, that, that had taken them over and kind of passed them off from one group to the next. So they've been under that, and that's their anticipation. Well, that's not God's. And that's part of the difficulty in accepting Messiah. He's not what they expected, Right? So again, throughout the Old Testament, the the powerful arm is a picture. It is a vivid image, and it is for Isaiah. Isaiah actually uses it many times, from chapter 48 to chapter 63. uses it about 10, 12 times to describe the power of God as he rules and reigns over humanity. And then in verse 11, he concludes with this description. And the image of a shepherd throughout the Old Testament is also is often synonymous with the image of a ruler. 
So a shepherd and a ruler, those are similar ideas, the same idea. So for Judah, they've had weak kings. They've had evil kings. But now the nation is once again, they're going to be ruled by a strong and compassionate shepherd. Who is that? God. God come in the form of man. And Jesus, if you remember this in John 10, and I think it's verse, verse 9, Jesus says as he is, is speaking in John, as John records for us, he says, I am the good shepherd. Right? Now think about that. When Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, do you think he was trying to connect with all the shepherds in the audience? Or do you think he was saying, hey, remember Psalm 23? Hey, remember Isaiah 40? I am that good shepherd. And I demonstrate my care. I demonstrate my, uh, um, my goodness, my compassion for you by doing what? The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Right? You see that connection? And how it fills out more. So the prophecy is complete. God did care for his people as they came back. He did watch over them. You look at the exile. Look at the record of the exile. Look, look at the end of Ezra. Ezra literally tells us, the end of Second Chronicles, it literally tells us the king of Persia paid for the rebuilding of the temple. The king of Persia largely paid for the return from exile. Well, man, that sounds like a shepherd was caring for their every need as they came back and he was making their way straight right? Not literally, you know, pressing the ground down and lifting up the, the little part. No, not literally. But certainly in a sense, God did exactly what he said he would do in their return from exile. So there is that initial fulfillment, but that is fulfilled in such a, 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 a greater way in Jesus. It, it gets filled out in Jesus, who ultimately is the good shepherd, and he gives his life for us, it's this perfect balance, which is hard to attain, but a perfect balance of strength and tenderness, right? There's a time at which all of us want somebody strong, but there's also a time we don't just want somebody strong. We kind of like somebody that was compassionate, <laughs> that cared, you know, that was tender. God is the perfect balance of both as we would expect him to be. And the rest of this chapter goes on to describe all the glories of who he is. God's primary way of dispensing his comfort to our hearts are through these truths, these promises found in his enduring and infallible word. God is still giving comfort to his people through his words. And by God's grace, I hope that is where you find comfort. I read a story about Kay Arthur, and um, we used one of her books this summer as we were going through First John together, and probably you've heard her name. But uh, many years ago, she actually lost her husband. And um, she tells the story of one day coming home from work. Uh, she was recently widowed. She was a young widow. She had two children. And it, would, it had been uh, an unusually difficult day, a, a bad day, a hard day. And she was struggling. She just was, was overwhelmed. 
she got home, she got her books out of her car, and she just kind of stood there and zoned out for a minute as she looked at the grass. Her childhood kind of sweeping back into her mind and thinking through her childhood of being afraid or being scared at a, a certain moment or having a hard day and being able to run into the arms of her father. In the moments that followed, she imagined that she was running down the hallway of her house and that she could run into the very throne room of God and run through his courtroom, which is in the midst of its session, and jump into his arms and that God himself would respond to her, now, now, tell your father all about it. She walked into the house that afternoon, put all her books down, on the table and walked through to the back of her house and knelt down beside her bed and did exactly that, told the Lord her struggles, her hurts, her bad day, knowing full well that he cares and is able to comfort. Folks, that is a reality. It is real. God can give comfort even when we are up against things that feel in some respects, completely overwhelming. What do I do about this? How do I respond to this? God can give comfort. Do we turn to him? Do we rest in him? Do we anticipate the day that we will literally be with him and able to speak to him? Do we talk to him like that now? We can, we should, by his grace Let's do that and find our comfort in him, even as we anticipate his second advent. We don't know when that could be. It may be today. It may be in another thousand years. We don't know. But we can find comfort in him today.